Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Kings Charge. I'm not Steve Hildry. I'm not Matt Croger. And, I, and I'm not Matt James. Nice. Good. Thank, thanks for that, Matt. That uh, threw us a... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show. So, um, start as we mean to go on. This is the first look the new magic supplement for kings of war halpy's rift so this is episode one of two episode one we're going to look at the magic supplement what it means all that kind of stuff and episode two we're going to plunge into the kind of clash of kings style balance changes included so if you're if you're tuning in to find out whether um elohi are good again bad luck uh try again in a, in a week or so uh this time we're going to be looking at the magic supplement halpy's rift so matt Welcome back to the show. So we, we had you on uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about the rules committee, which uh, went down pretty well, I think. Yeah, uh, I've had some uh, some positive feedback from that one. So, uh, yeah, it was nice to chat with you and, and sort of show people behind the scenes, if you like, and let people know what we get up to on a, on a regular basis. I just had Matt Croger's fans begging me to uh, bring him back on again. He said, it's not the same without Croger on the show. Is that right, Croger? Yeah, I, I assume that's right. That seems pretty right to me. But yeah, I um, I really enjoyed the rules committee. It was good to see under your kilt, Matt. So yeah, it was a it was a great episode. Cool. So we we, we did a little hobby update a couple of weeks ago, and I I taken myself up a hobby update here. But having <laughs> having said that, I was in a hobby slump and I wasn't going to do any hobby because I didn't like painting miniatures. I'm looking at my hobby desk right now. It's got 40 salamanders. Uh, 10 centaurs, six earth elementals and a tree herder on it because I accidentally I had an accident you see I slipped and fell and in order to stop myself <laughs> from uh, hurting myself I accidentally bought a forces of nature army so I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through doing them which is very exciting uh, uh, how about yourself uh, Matt, James, I suppose we've got two matches which is quite slightly irritating, sorry about that uh, have, you, have you done anything the last couple of weeks? Have you been hobbying away? So I have been doing more work on my orcs, getting them rebased. I painted my Mantic Giant, so I've finally got around to doing him. And I am currently in the process of looking into getting a castle built for Siege Games. So we reverting back to the uh, 2019 Clash of Kings rules, making some some tweaks to those to get it up to third edition for um, for uh, for my own personal use. But yeah, just looking at what what my options are with regards to um, getting hold of uh, an appropriately sized uh, fortress. Return of the Siege, yeah, I think it was a didn't quite kind of uh, it came at the wrong time, didn't it? Siege rules, but I think there's there's definitely a, an avenue for it. The only the only slight barrier is have you got a bloody great big castle? I suppose. Yeah, I mean uh, you do see the odd photo of uh, siege games taking place um, get posted to fanatics, but yes, like you say, with it coming at the end of the edition. It wasn't, you know, the, perhaps the best time to bring it out, but it's, you know, it's still pretty much perfectly valid and it can be played still with some, uh, you know, some common sense tweaks such as, you know, certain points where it says measure from the leader point. You might want to measure from the um, from any point in the unit as you do now in third edition and things like that. So, yeah, it's not too, it's not too bad and it's still you know perfectly serviceable. Cool beans and crozier. 
What have you been? It's been a while since I've heard your dulcet tones on the airways, although I am hideously behind with my listening. So I've got about four or five episodes because I'm not driving anywhere. I'm just not listening, which is, is, is poor of me, really. I should uh, put it on during the day. But you, you've been up to your... Um, oh, what's the name of the miniatures you've been doing? Your little samurai army, is that right? The Dragon Empire army. Dragon yes, Empire, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, so... um. And I've been writing some Basilea lists for them. I mean, it changes every day what army I'm going to use them as, but it doesn't really matter. So I've got the first of many reds down on a uh, regiment of spearmen, so 15 blokes because it has to be PMC because that's what the book says, isn't it? Outrage. And so, yeah, that's going well. And as, uh, we've got the hobby challenge going in, in the countercharge group. So the participation challenge. Oh, that's good for you, Steve. You should participate because I'm, I'm. I have been. I have been. Yeah, good. Okay, great. Yeah, I'd, actually, I did see all those. I saw those models that you fell into. So <laughs> that's good. That's <laughs> my favourite kind of uh, challenge is when we just literally just have to turn up. That's all we have to do. Just turn up, and I'm like, yeah, give me exactly. a medal. Yeah. Uh, while on that medal, how terrible are those mental metal centaurs to deal with? I really like oh. the models, but they are shocking to deal with. I think. I got them. I got a whole bunch painted, and now they're in pieces. I mean, they're they're, they're glued together, all right. To be honest, the gluing together was fine. My main problem with them is the is the giant like hole all the way down their back that you have to green stuff. And I'm not I'm not like Chris Walsh level green stuff. I'm very much amateur hour green stuff. So I, I, I've spent ages trying to make it look anywhere near. These. It looks terrible. But I think I'm just I'm just gonna I'm, I'm gonna do a poor paint job on them anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But I'm going full model count with this. I'm going to have 10 in a regiment. So hopefully there's just enough weapons flying around. You don't notice the fact that they've just got apparently some putty stuffed in the hole on the back of them. But I like the model. I think they're really nice. I don't really get... Mm. People say that it's the arms are really fragile, but I haven't had that problem yet. So we'll see, I guess. Yeah, mine's were. I love the model. But yeah, definitely, definitely the arms were a problem for me. Mm. Anyway, that's what I've been up to. And you've been doing it. And so have you just assembled your models or you got some paint on them already? Uh, well, um, I've painted my Earth Elementals because Earth Elementals are really easy to paint. You just literally, it's just, just treat them like a rock, right? <laughs> Dry brush them and then paint the runes. So I did them in, in about half an hour, which is really cool. And I've just, I've, I've undercated all the centaurs and the tree herder. And as we're talking, I'm, I'm hoping that Matt's going to talk a lot, Matt James, um, and I'm going to contrast paint the living snot out of this tree herder. Uh, and try and get him because it's a big model and i've got one part i'm <laughs> trying to get all that done but anyway on to the on to the episode so we've covered who matt james is in the recent rules committee episode if you haven't checked it out i heartily recommend you do to find out a little bit about how uh, the rules of kings of war are developed and how that kind of works but we're on to matt james's baby he's uh, been working very hard over the over lockdown and before lockdown perhaps on a magic supplement to thrill the uh, Kings of War playing public. So, Matt, tell us about, um, let's start at the beginning. What was the concept behind the magic supplement? Kind of what was your brief? Um, so, yeah, Mantic came to me in January, I want to say, certainly towards the start of the year, and said, you know, we want to do a, a crazy magic supplement. You know, talked about the new two-player starter set and things like that and sort of wanted something that tied in with it uh, and to do, to do an expansion. So initially, this was going to be a standalone book, you know, no Clash of Kings tweets, no nothing like that in it. Um, obviously, that shifted due to the, the current situation where, you know, perhaps releasing two books in a year when not many games are being played wouldn't be such a, such a smart move. So 
yeah, so so we, we had this idea presented to us on the rules committee that, you know, want to do this crazy magic campaign. And a brief sort of fluff overview was given, but really wasn't, you know, too too in-depth. And we just kind of bounced ideas back and forth between between ourselves and, uh, and, and with Mantic to see what we could come up with. So, yeah, essentially there's, uh, in terms of the background, there is some something happens in the Halpy Mountains which triggers a, let's say, a chain reaction of events and introduces all this crazy magic into the world. So that's kind of like a brief overview of, of what the starting point for this was. So then it became sort of like a situation where we're, we're looking at how, how do we go about doing this? Because we don't really want to just introduce a load of new spells into the game and not read, you know, that would be a sort of simple thing to do, but it didn't, didn't really feel right do that so i started looking through all of the um the background and the law in the big hardback rule book and i think it's on either page 99 or 100 there is a lovely um sort of poster piece if you like where it's this diagram of how all the magic works oh yeah that's that's one of my favorite bits of the rule book that it's a it's a beautiful diagram and you kind of feel there's so much depth in there waiting to be explored right in the top right hand corner of that there are the planes so you've got all these different planes of magic that are in this sort of diagram in the top right-hand corner. So from that, I kind of went back to, to Mantic and we had discussions about that idea. But really, I kind of I kind of just mentioned how I didn't want to just do new spells and new artifacts and, you know, terrain rules was something Mantic wanted. So we've done that as well. But I didn't want to just, just sort of do that because that just kind of felt a bit like a cop-out, really. Um, and also... Yeah, there was just so much scope to, to do a little bit more with it than, than just that. So I kind of set myself a few little objectives when I sort of started setting out uh, on the path to writing this. So obviously, first thing is I, I want it to be fun. Um, I want it to be something that, that people are really going to enjoy, something that's going to change games up a bit, aimed at beer and pretzels gaming rather than tournament gaming. And yeah, going beyond just adding spells and artifacts and creating memorable moments. The flip side of that, is I also wanted to keep it simple because simplicity is one of the things that attracted me to Kings of War in the first place. So having a, a rule set that's easy to understand and easy to play was great. And obviously adding new magic systems and new magic rules to the game would obviously introduce a new element of complexity beyond what the core game is. But, you know, it is an expansion after all. So it, it kind of has to do that. But at the same time, how do we achieve the most with the least amount of complexity, if that makes sense? Um, so that was another thing I was very keen to do. And the other thing was I, I wanted to really ensure that this kind of remained outside tournament play. So obviously we, it does state in, in the book, in the text, that this is not designed for you know competitive play. But my concern was that if we just introduced a bunch of new styles and a bunch of new artifacts, then it would be very simple for say a tournament organizer to just say yeah this book's legal and and have it and then we potentially get a bit of backlash as to oh this is broken and that's that's too powerful and this is this is rubbish and and that kind of thing which which i was quite keen to avoid um obviously even with the text in there it says you know it's not designed for tournament play we have seen things before like the historicals book get used in um in second edition the tournament play so i was just a little bit anxious that there's some something there that on top of you know that statement 
to make sure that it's kind of cordoned off and kept separate. Another thing Mantic requested was that some additional rules for big games, not your standard 2,000 to 2,500 point game. We're talking more 3,000 points and up. So some additional rules for that. So the planes, that concept that's presented in the uh, in the book, in that diagram, gave me the opportunity to do that and, and sort of achieve all of those things because what it's allowed me to do is kind of look at each plane and say, right, well, these are, we've got these five different planes. We've got the material plane, the Empyrean plane, the abyssal plane, uh, the etheric plane, and the astral plane. And in the, in the book, there's going to be a section on each of those planes and the rules and the things and the spells and the extra magical situations that you're going to encounter there are going to be specific to each plane. So if you're playing in the uh, Empyrean plane, things that you can do are going to be very different to the things that you can do in the Abyssal plane. And then your standard tournament games are not in any of the planes, so you can't do it. So that was that was a quite convenient way of doing things and making sure those two things remain separate, but also a way that uh, allows us to kind of really do something quite steeped in the background. So, you know, we can make the the Abyssal plane do some very specific things uh, and set the scene and build the world and, and, and to kind of really allow the players to immerse themselves that the the battle is taking place on the abyssal plane so is it it's called a campaign supplement right so so is it is it a campaign to be played through and, and kind of how long do we anticipate these rules will kind of re- remain in place if you like as an ongoing concern within the mantic universe so i'm not sure if there's anything planned with regards to how the edge of the abyss campaign was run because obviously that had the online component it, where you could submit your results and uh, that would shape the direction of future law. I'm not 100% sure as to whether Mantic are going to be looking at doing something similar or not at the moment. What I can tell you is that the idea behind this this um, campaign, if you like, is that you could play through each of the planes. So if I was playing you next week, Steve, or playing you, Matt, I would say, right, so let's set our game in the material plane this week and we'd have a look at all the stuff that we could take in the material plane we play our game in the material plane and then the following week or well, whenever we can next meet up for a game we say right let's do the abyssal plane next week so the idea is that you work through the four planes which are the material abyssal empyrean and etheric plane and then the fifth plane the astral plane is kind of like the final boss and that's when things get really crazy so so yeah that's that's kind of how the campaign works and um you know if it was just me and you doing it or me and a, you and your a buddy or whoever then i guess you can kind of work out your own way of keeping score and and do that sort of stuff with it so yeah there's there's quite a lot of scope for doing different things with this book okay so it sounds like it's a it's it's yeah it's a dual thing that there's this storyline which is playing through the planes which i yeah it sounds like a story that players can follow in a campaign but then each plane is also almost like its own for games is that right yeah so you know you yeah. don't have to play through each one in sequence you could just jump straight to the to the astral plane and do the final boss uh, as i as i call it or you guys might uh, a real real thing for playing in the abyssal plane or the etheric plane and just want to play all your games in there from now on um, or and any mixture of the, the the two or 
you know, whatever. I mean, you, if you really wanted to and you wanted to write lists for each different plane, I suppose you could roll for it. You know, there's nothing stopping you randomising which plane. So it is kind of left down to the players to decide which, which planes they want to fight in. But I think there's enough plane that there's, there's a reason to try each of them at least once. Okay. My burning question is, who is helping and why are we plunging into his rift? Uh, so... Halpy refers to the Halpy Mountains, which is where the initial thing that happens is is uh, is is happening. So the Halpy Mountains are a mountain range, I think, somewhere near Basilea, or between Basilea and the Dwarven Lands, kind of in the east of of Panathor, if you look at the map. And something has gone on there, which has sparked off this increased level of magical activity in the world is that something is that is that the storyline that's going to be uh, i assume in the book rather than uh, do we uh, you know is that some fluff that's expanded on so we can kind of uh, follow through and uh, look oh, into yeah. the i am i am scratching the surface with that i believe that there will be a significant amount of background law in the book that gives gives you the story behind why this has happened who's who's caused this uh, this explosion of magic in the world and why everybody is, is fighting over it. And does that tie into the new two-player starter set that's been uh, not so much announced but leaked uh, in the last couple of days? Uh, it could possibly. <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> we'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll take that. Great forward defence there. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, can we get any more of an overview of the storyline of who the main characters might be or anything matter, or that's all top secret? Um, I don't want to elaborate on it on it too much. I think if I um, if I give everything away on the on the podcast, you know, I don't, one I don't think Mantic would be too happy, and, and two, obviously, want to save something for the players for when they get their goodies uh, in the post and they um, open things up. What I will say is that, that yes, there are some protagonists involved, and that sees the introduction of some new heroes into the game, which are available to, to various armies, um, and those. Those profiles represent the uh, the characters in the law that are active participants in this uh, this ongoing situation. That's great. I'd, I'd love to see some more named characters. What about any old favourites? I mean, it's entirely possible that, that some old favourites may return. Mm. The things that are happening at Halpy's Rift, you know, are of interest to many of the denizens of Panathor. And who knows who will come out of the uh, who knows who will come out of the woodwork to fight over the spoils? I can hear ogre players rubbing their hands together, and uh, we'll, we'll see where we go with that. So, um, moving on to the planes of reality, you know, give us a brief overview. What what are the new planes, and kind of, an, and how do they work? You know, talk about you know, do, do they have a different rule set? What's the effect if if I'm in a plane of reality, playing in the abyssal plane or the imperium plane? Um, what what's the effect on gameplay? So each of the planes has a has a rule set attached to it, essentially. And all of the planes have a scenario. All of the planes have uh, different magical terrain that can be used when playing in those planes. So the abyssal plane terrain will be quite fiery and, um, you know, sort of scary terrain. And, the uh, you know, it's all very much themed to the to the landscape in which you should be, be taking part in the battle. There is also a Monsters and Mercenaries of the Planes section in, under each of the planes, and that is 
a couple of extra models that you can take or um, include in your army list if you choose. You know, you still have to pay, pay points for them. So, for example, if we use the um, abyssal plane as an example again, you know, you can imagine that there are a couple of abyssal units that might be willing to help out some of the bad guys in those uh, those situations. And similarly for the Imperium plane, there's some some good guys who might help out some of the good guys. So yeah, we've got um, we've got that section, which perhaps if you've always wanted a a particular model or a particular unit, or you've got something you know some unfinished hobby project that might serve the purpose then um, this might give you the option to do that or perhaps something that's been sat in a box for too long. Um, also in, in each of the planes, there is a number of spells which can be taken. I think it's, um, it's two, per, two per plane um, optional spells that can be taken. And there's also manag- magical uh, channeling tables. And this is a new introduction. You know, this is where we've really kind of expanded. I, I spoke before about... Um, you know, having something that goes beyond just a bunch of spells and artifacts uh, and something that can create those memorable moments. And, and so we've got these um, these channeling tables that you roll on at the start of, start of each turn and they can give you some some random effects that you can put on your units. Um, that is tied to the number of spellcaster levels you have on the table and it is random. So you roll on a table and then de- depending on what you roll, you, you, might be able to, you might be able to pick one of the options on the table and then it's a case of picking a, a unit that it goes on and uh, things like that. And then we've also got uh, some plane specific magical artifacts. So if you're fighting in the Imperium plane, there will be an artifact that is available to you. And similarly, if you are on the Etheric plane, then you'll be able to uh, to take the item from the Etheric plane. So talk about, so, uh, you know, full disclosure, Matt and I have played together the magic supplement and uh, so i've got some kind of some insight i think it's well let's talk about the channeling tables because that's one of the biggest changes i think to how people play certainly and i you know they do make a definite effect on the gameplay so let's can you give us some examples let's pick pick a plane um, and pick a channeling table and give some examples of how it physically works in game what do you do um what would the effects be uh, and how would they affect gameplay sure okay so I'll start by explaining how they work because it's the same. They work the same for all of the different planes. It's just the options on each channeling table are different in each plane. So each plane has its own channeling table. Um, so as I say, at the start of, the start of the turn, you will roll a number of dice equal to the number of spellcaster levels that you have on the table to a maximum of three if you're playing at... Uh, around about the 2000 point level there is a, another table in the book um similar to like the maximum duplicates table that's in the main rule book it kind of explains the bigger the bigger the game the more dice you can roll on this table and the more of the um options you can pick so let's say you've got a total of three spellcaster levels on the table you will roll three dice at the start of your turn and you will then consult the table as to what those three numbers mean that you've rolled on the dice so you might have rolled a one you might have rolled a four and you might have rolled a five so you look at the table and you go right what does one do what does uh, four do and what does five do now the kicker here is that you can only pick one result per turn so having more spellcaster levels on the table gives you a greater chance of getting what you want and what you need at the time you need it you always roll a minimum of one dice so if you don't want to spend the points on you know, loads of spellcasters, 
then you don't have to, but it is going to be more random as to what you get. So you'll be, you know, when we played Steve, we were both rolling three dice on the, or we were rolling four because we were playing a bigger game, but we'll cover that later. So you'll roll the, the dice on the table and, and you'll consult it and you'll have to make a decision then as to, okay, so you might have rolled one thing that you really don't want, you know, it's got no use this turn, and two things that you, you might actually have a use for. You might have something that maybe heals your unit or something that gives you a greater chance of winning the, the melee that your that your unit is in. So then you've got a decision to make as to whether you heal the unit that might need healing or whether you buff the unit that needs to be um, buffed for the melee. So, yeah, it's, it's not just like a, a random effect. There is a strategic choice involved there. So you get a number of random options presented to you, but then it's down to you as the player to choose which one is most appropriate for the um, for the goals of your turn, really. And I think this is kind of why why it's not competitive play, right? It's not for competitive play because this can be incredibly swingy, right? But you know, this is like um, when we talk about a double one rule about how you know the the battles that you remember are the ones where crazy things happen and you get a double one, you know, three times in a row or something like that. The principle here is that you know if you roll on the channeling table and um, I'm going to use an example. Sure. And I can't, I can't remember what plane it is, but I remember there was a, a result on a channeling table where you can grant an individual speed 10 fly for one turn, right? Yeah. Th- and the difference that can make to the battle can be colossal, but it can also be hilarious. Um, yeah. And I think at one point you flew a dwarf uh, across the table to surge an earth elemental unit in an incredibly irritating way. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Uh, and the actual entry for that is called light speed. So you've got a dwarf stone priest moving at the speed of light, which was pretty cool. And by the same token, Steve, you had the one in that game where you had your shock troops were going in hindered, but you actually managed to get something on the channeling table that buffed them and you were able to to wipe out my unit because you you got that. So, yeah, it is a bit of swings and roundabouts and it does create some random moments. I mean, you're never guaranteed to get what you want. You know, if you roll two fives, well, sorry, you can only pick one. And you know you've you've rolled two five, so you're kind of stuck with that choice. It's what what did your other dice roll? Um, so you know if you're rolling three, that was so. And it's not it's not like um, it's not like whatever edition of Warhammer had giant you know meteors hitting the way. It's not like these are not wild swinging pieces of magic, right? This is not some ridiculous thing. The example you gave where I had the um, the flying stone freeze, that is probably the most extreme one on any of the challenge tables really and to be mm. honest I, I rolled it several times throughout the game and chose not to use it because it just didn't have a have a role to play that you know i was looking at other options on the uh, right. on the table so yeah i think I mean, it's effectively how i went about writing them was i started looking at the army specific upgrades um and magic artifacts that were kind of around about the 15 point range or, or just generally sort of special rules that were around about that 15 point range so some of them, you know, it might be something you pay 10 points for, something something you might pay 20 points for. But they're all sort of around about that level of buff, really. Uh, and, you know, you factor in the, the randomness of it. And then obviously you've got to make a decision as to which those options you take. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking this is sounding really fun. I mean, I think a lot of us on Countercharge... You know, yes, we do play tournaments, but I, for one, certainly, you know, my favourite games are the garage games with my mates and, you know, often we'll bring filthier stuff to our 
garage games than we would take to a tournament. So I can see us using this, you know, for great fun. So when it comes to the new magic, yeah. are there any other effects every second day on on um, fanatics? There's how do spellcaster levels work? You know, what's they what are they going to do? And you've mentioned that it'll uh, equate to the amount of dice. Uh, are there any other ways that the levels will come into the game? Yes. The spellcaster levels come into effect when you actually purchase the new spells in the game. And this was something that was always intended when we wrote third edition and we put spellcaster levels in. And in fact, it's already in there, just kind of working in the background. We just haven't had to explain it until now. So you might have noticed that if you buy certain spells, like say, for example, a Goblin Wiz, it is a level one spellcaster, and, and you buy you know, whatever spell you can take on him. Uh, and then you look at a spellcaster that's level two or level three, and that spellcaster has the same spell options, you will notice that the level twos and the level threes have a greater number of dice and pay more points for the spells than, say, the goblin level one or the human level one or the orc or whatever. Um, so one of the reasons we decided to do it that way for third edition was that in, in second edition, you had some quite powerful spells in the game, and it just never seemed to make much sense that an elf that is supposed to be, you know, in the lore, uh, you know, this mythical level of, of wizard that can do, you know, all these great spells and, and makes it look like child's play, was paying more points to effectively get the same value of spell as uh, a goblin. And so that kind of never really made sense. So what we've done, um, and this will be a feature going forward uh, when new spells do get released for tournament play, is we've made it so that if you're a level one wizard, you can only buy the spells at level one. So each of these new spells has a table attached to it. And it says, okay, so at level one, it's got this many dice and it costs this many points. At level two, it's, it's more dice and it costs some more points. And at level three, it's lots of dice, lots of points, really powerful. So what what that does going forward and in this book is it provides the new spells with almost like a, a little balancing mechanic of its own that fits in with the law. And yes, yeah, so we've used that for the first time in this new magical supplement. So under each of the planes, you know, as I said, there's two spells listed under each of the planes. And the spellcasters can purchase spells up to their spellcaster mm -hmm. level. So if you don't want to spend all the points, but you've got a level three, you can still buy the level one version of the spell. And it's just that the level one caster can't then buy the super powerful level three version of the spell. So it's kind of just split it out a bit. Okay. And even though this is obviously not meant for tournament play, are you using that aspect as maybe a little bit of a trial for what we might see in the future in terms of tournament play Kings of War? Yes. Yeah, so the, um, the the spells, any future spells that we publish for for tournament play that are considered to be you know worthy of competitive play will follow that template, if you like, where you know level one spells are going to be cheap and you can take them on anyone with the spell cast level and then you've got your level three versions of the same spell which are really powerful but only your, your most powerful wizards can take them so that that will be something that you see going forward uh, and one of the things we would, were really hoping with this book was that it would sort of act as a testing ground for some of these ideas and some of these things which could then be introduced uh, into a clash of kings book but obviously the the book's 
that were planned this year have now been sort of merged into one book. So perhaps it'll be some of some of these ideas specifically. We'll have to wait until the next Clash of Kings book for them to be like fully tournament compliant, fully tested. So, Matt, when it comes to other new things we're going to see in the book, are we going to see some new artifacts to spice things up a bit? Yeah. So in addition to the artifacts which are specifically available when playing in certain planes, there is also a list of common magic artifacts that could be taken in any of the planes in the campaign. Uh, and with this being a magical supplement and aimed heavily on the spellcasting side of things, a lot of the magic artifacts that you see, not all of them, but a lot of the ones that you see in that common list are things that are going to improve spellcasting, shall we say, or add a greater, greater amount of flexibility to spellcasting. Uh, some of them are risk-reward, so there might be an opportunity for you to do something which is a little bit out of the ordinary when, when it comes to casting spells, which could be a massive benefit to you, but they've all got some sort of drawback. So you'll, you'll see some quite interesting things happening with those, I think. And then there are a couple of other ones which are just, you know, sort of generic ones that you can give to, to whoever. Um, some of them as well, it's worth pointing out, are ones that can help you manipulate what you roll on the channeling tables that we just talked about as well. So, yeah, there's a there's a list of artifacts which can be taken by anyone at almost any time in the campaign. And then there are ones which are things you come across in the various planes and someone in your army might pick one up and decide to have a go at using it. I like that idea. So you're wandering through the planes and you've picked up a, a random ring and suddenly you're, you know, or a random hat that you've popped on yourself. I like the idea. So Matt, you've mentioned scenarios, uh, new scenarios as part of the, the book. Talk a little bit about uh, about the new scenarios. So they're not so much new scenarios as they are reimagining about old favourites. So what I mean by that is you will still play the scenarios that are in the main rule book. So it's not a whole bunch of stuff to learn because there's quite a lot in this book already, which can have quite big effects on the games. But there are certain, well, each, each plane has a scenario and each of those scenarios has an effect on on the spellcaster so for example if you're within three inches of a objective marker and you with one of your spellcasters you might be able to re-roll something or you might take damage or there might be some sort of random effect that takes place when you're carrying a loot token for example so yes each of the um each of the planes has a special rule that applies to either the area that you need to control for you know, scenarios like invade, control and dominate or the tokens which you pick up in loot or the objective markers that you uh, have to control in scenarios like pillage. OK, so that's basically, yeah, going to going to change it up. And so you mean old favourites scenarios like kill Matt? <laughs> uh, I don't think I've used kill as as something that I've applied a special rule to. Uh, it, all needed, it all needed a token or some sort of area. Of yeah, that's because kill's perfect just as it is, right? Why change perfection? Uh, you, you're not the kill, but it's a fantastic intro scenario. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so that's really cool. So we've got um, we've got um, some some new rules in the channeling tables. We've got some new spells. We've got spellcaster levels finally making an appearance. 
Uh, we've got some new artefacts. Given that they're all keyed to each of the new planes, let's talk a little bit about what the kind of main effects you would expect the different planes to have on gameplay. So let, let's go through them. Let's start with the material plane. Tell us a bit about the material plane and kind of the main effects of that plane on gameplay. So from a background perspective, the material plane is is the world as we know it. It's Panathor. Um, so I've imagined this to be kind of around the Halpy Mountains where the epicentre of this situation is taking place. And so because it's kind of like the starting point for this, everything in here is a little bit of a toolbox. So you'll see as we go through the other planes that some of them are quite themed. And as such, some of the spells and channeling table effects are, you know, they do have a theme on them. So, yeah, uh, this one is a little is one of those things which kind of does a little bit of everything. And so, yeah, from a, from a rules perspective, the channeling table does that. It's it's got something for all occasions effectively whether you get it when whether you get to roll that when you need it you know is a different different situation a different matter so yeah on, on the channel table actually on on this one uh, one of my favorite things in the in the whole book actually is a channeling table effect which is called confused monster so if you roll this um, you get to pick an enemy monster and it lashes out at everything within six inches of it. It's confused. It, it doesn't know what it's doing. I love that. I love that. The, the, the magic has somewhat confused it. So all units within six inches of, the, of that monster take an immediate hit, and you use the crushing strength value of the monster or titan uh, when resolving damage. So, yeah, it's just a, just a funny little kind of reverse cloak of death kind of thing, or reverse radiance of life, I should probably say, uh, that you have to roll for the damage on. So, yeah, you, you've got... got You've got that on the channeling table. You've got a melee buff, and you've got uh, some other little bits and bobs on there as well that um, that can really have an effect on the game. In terms of terrain, there's a there's a bard's tap house, which I know we used in our. I won't I won't say what it does now, but um, it is a bard's tap house, and it has. You know, if you know anything about tap houses, then you can probably guess what it does. So, um, let, let, sorry, let's just stop there. So, you have mentioned special terrain, but we haven't actually talked about what that is. So, you know, um, I suppose, you know, from my understanding, what it means is that there is terrain pieces and you choose terrain pieces and they have an effect on the game. Is that right? Yeah. So, for example, the two in the material plane are the Icy Lagoon and the Bard's Tap House. And so, if we were playing a game in the material plane, we would have a look at the table before the game and we'd probably, if you know, because this is geared towards friendly games, probably come to some sort of mutual arrangement as to how the terrain should be laid out. And we'd point at something that looks kind of like a tap house and we'd probably look, point at something that looks like an icy lagoon or, or can pass as a, as a lake of some description and we'd go, okay, we'll call that the tap house, we'll call that the, the lake, maybe we'll label it just so we can remember. And a certain effect will apply either to units that are within the terrain or for the terrain it will be uh, an area of effect such as like six inches everything within six inches gets this special ball or this buff to a certain stat or something along those lines so yeah you can you can use them to your your benefit and maybe lure your lure your enemy um, into situations where the terrain has an effect on them in a negative way so yeah definitely add something from a strategic point of view and, and sort of makes you think about terrain a little bit more um, there's there's two in each of the 
in each of the planes, as I mentioned. Uh, so there's two, two options for each of the planes. Uh, hopefully, people might start modelling up some of these these pieces of terrain so they've got a tap house or some abyssal terrain, and it will really increase the level of immersion that you can have because you'll feel like the game is taking place in this, this strange land, not just a generic, you know, there's my height six wood, you know, or, or there's there's my height three forest, you know? So. Yeah. I really like themed terrain. I like terrain with effects as well. Is it expected, you know, if you're playing in the material plane, do you have to have both of these or are they optional? Is it because it's intended for friendly play? Is it just yeah. kind of a, a pick and grab what you fan- what you fancy? This really is. It's, so it's all kind of set up in a way that it's quite modular. So you might decide that, you know, you, could, you don't have to play the scenario. You know, you, you could just decide to play a normal game of Dominate or or something along those lines and not have the magical effect take, take hold, you could choose to play without the channeling tables. I mean, I think it'd be you know, kind of missing the point if you do, but you, you could choose not to do that. So there's uh, there, there's definitely a modular kind of feel to this. I personally would just go ahead and use everything, but you might feel, you know, if you're a new player uh, or maybe you're, you're playing your first games of this, you might think, actually, we'll leave the terrain out and we'll just have the channeling table for now and just, just learn it slowly, um, which is fine. You know, it, it's, it's built in a way that you can have those agreements with, with your opponent and use as much of it or as little of it as you please. I mean, I, I agree. So, you know, when we played, obviously we used all of it because we, we were recording it to, to put onto the internet, but um, we wanted to show off every, every bit of it we can. It does make the game more complex. You know, and, and Kings of War is a game that thrives on its simplicity, but it's not like, oh, this is really confusing complex. It's not like you've got a you know, 50-page army book for every single army with special rules and special spells and that. It's no. just adding... It, it was actually quite fun to remember that, oh, actually, this unit's next to that thing, so it means that actually it's got this rule... You know, and it would it create some really stupid moments whereby, frankly, whatever your little dog unit was called should have died three turns previously <laughs> and bloody didn't. And and I will never forget that. So, you know, it, it was just kind of that kind of fun, ridiculous situations whereby we, we're both remembering rules as we're going along and then uh, playing as a go. And I think, I think, yeah, definitely. It probably takes some getting used to if people are, you know... People need to relax a little bit into it to remember that it's not that hyper-competitive sort of play. Oh, for sure. And that's and 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 that's actually as I, as I played through our game, it just became more and more fun as I you know as I kind of realised what was going on and how this was working. And at the end of it, I'm not sure we even cared who won or lost because it was just that it was just such a such a great game. Yes, as I said, you know, the idea is obviously to keep it as simple as an expansion can be. There obviously will be some extra things to learn and, and adjust to. Um, because obviously that is the nature of an expansion. However, I'm looking at the rules in front of me now, and like the, the, the terrain pieces, it's two lines of text. It's uh, one to tell you um, what height and type of terrain it is. So, for example, the bar's tap house, it gives you the height value and tells you that it's blocking terrain. And then it tells you that units of, you know, within six inches of it have this special rule. So it's like you know, everyone knows what that special rule does because everyone's played the game and everyone knows in very basic terms what that special rule does. It's just a case of remembering, oh yeah, it's that piece of terrain that gives me it. So if we move on to some of the other planes, so we've discussed the material plane, how about the abyssal plane? So yes, the abyssal plane is kind of very much as you would imagine it to be. So the spells are kind of 
very fire themed in here. One's called Scorched Earth and the other is called Blazing Inferno. So definitely trying to give off the impression that you are fighting in the depths of hell. Possibly my favourite thing in the entire book is in here, but we'll come back to that. Um, in terms of terrain, you've got things like a, like a Hellfire Lake and an Obelisk of Damnation, which you know obviously have special rules to you, that apply to units that are in them or, or near them. And the channeling table in the Abyssal Plane is actually very much geared towards damage uh, and increasing the amount of damage that you do on, on, on units. Um, so, I mean, not every not everything on that table is geared toward damage. There are a couple of things that are little buffs that do other things, but there's definitely a more sort of damage dealing approach to this one, whereas the material plane channeling table um, was very much a, a sort of toolbox. It's because you're walking through lava. That's the principle we're talking about here, right? Uh, correct. Yes, and the magic that your um, that your spellcasters are able to manipulate in here kind of manipulates the surroundings. And so you know, different different results. They've all got a, a name. Um, it's not just one, two, three, four, five, six. They've all got they've all got a name. So there's one on there called like Abyssal Vengeance, and there's another one called uh, Fire of the Fourth Circle. So it's all tying back into the fluff of the abyss and all in the background and, and really kind of trying to set the scene as to what's going on. So Matt, can can I ask if you're um if you're a good army fighting in the abyssal plane, can you still access the abyssal kind of effects, these kind of more evil effects? Is that yes? Is that it's not like you're a good army, you have a negative effect from being in the abyssal plane? No, no, no. You're you're in the abyssal plane, and you know you might be a goody two shoes elf, but you know how to manipulate magic and you know what to do with it. So you kind of deal what's what's in the air around you, if that makes sense. So um, you manipulate the surroundings that you find yourself in. So it's not Got you. just tied to to evil armies, uh, not not in the abyssal plane anyway. So, yeah, we've got um, we've got that covered. And so both armies will be able to roll on the abyssal uh, channeling table when playing in the abyssal plane. And, and that applies to to all of the planes really you know they are available to armies of all alignments uh if you're neutral then pick a side <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah get off the fence god trident realm chain um <laughs> basically if you if you're playing against an, uh, an opponent who wants to be the good guys then um maybe do the honorable thing uh, and uh let your opponent be the good guys and, and you can be evil and uh, or vice versa you know be there to make up the numbers <laughs> so, so Matt, before we move on to the uh, to the other side of the coin in the imperium plane you, you just said something your favorite thing in the game what's your favorite thing in the game so my favorite thing in the game is an artifact called the hourglass of the cronius so cronius for those of you who've read the background is an abyssal monster that kind of manipulates time and so basically the hourglass is a time travel device so basically once per game you can use this this artifact in melee and what it effectively lets you do is have have a redo of that melee so only with the unit that's uh that's got the item though so after rolling to hit and damage with the unit that's got this but before rolling for the nerve te- nerve test or um rolling any other attacks from other units that are involved in the same melee the player can just go right i'll discard all that and i'll start again so let's say you need, like you're hoping or you're expecting to get, say, like eight damage. 
from whatever unit you've got in melee. And you roll and you go, oh, damn it, I only got six. You know, uh, well, uh, I really could do with the eight. So you get rid of the six, you roll all the dice again, and it might go better, it might go worse, but the second result stands. So, um, yeah, it's just a really fun little risk-reward thing. So, so I call this the, the ultimate four plus to hit unit item, right? Because four plus to hit is so swingy. And this, this removes some of that swing. It's, it's kind of like, a, it's not elite and vicious, but it's kind of like a do-over, right? Just in case everything goes down the toilet. It is com- is a complete do-over in case everything goes down the toilet. Or you might you might use it more out of hope than expectation. There might be something where you kind of backed into a situation where, right, I really need this to go well. It probably won't go well, but I've got this item. And if I, you know, maybe you're expecting to get eight damage, but what you really need is 12 you know, and you think, right, well, you know, maybe I can get more uh, closer to, to that 12 damage uh, if I try again. Of course, there is always the risk that you could roll even worse the second time around, and that result stands. And then you'll probably roll even worse the second time around and be one away from breaking the unit on a nerve check. But there we go. Um, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. But, but yeah, I, I can, can see some funny things happening with that item. Nice. So uh, moving on to the other side of the coin, the Imperium Plane. So this is where all the goody goodies live, right? This, is this that? Is this the home of the Alohi? Is this where the Shining Ones live? Uh, sort of. Yeah. It's it's very much based around the concept of heaven uh, and that kind of angelic walking in the clouds kind of set, uh, landscape, if you like. So yeah, there's. Uh, there's very much an emphasis on healing stuff in the channeling tables. So yeah, there's a few things there. There are things like radiance of life or a unit might get D three points of damage back or something along those lines. Uh, there's actually also some shooting buffs in here as well. So um, for those of you that <gasps> take shooty, shooty stuff, you know, there are, um, there are a couple of things in that on that channeling table, which can, you know, perhaps help you to ignore ignore modifiers of, of some description or um, or perhaps, you know, help you to take the target in other ways. Uh, of course, in this one is the um, the light speed effect that we spoke about my Dwarf Stone Priest gaining in our game, Steve. So that's that's on this one. And, yeah, there, there's there's quite a few interesting things there on that channeling table. Like I said, you know, that it's not all based around heal. You know, like I say, there are a couple of things there that are, little buffs that do other things as well but um yeah i've definitely tried to kind of tried to sort of theme each of the uh, each of the planes and, and so this one's definitely got got a theme great if we move on to the next one i think that's the etheric plane yeah so this one is very much kind of like a, a shadowy realm that some creatures that may like to stalk around at night time living so in this one the channeling table is very much based around is very much based around just nerfing your opponent so we've got the toolbox that generally buffs you know in the material plane we've got the damage uh, of the abyssal plane we've got the healing sort of focus that the imperial plane has and this one is just messing with your opponent so doing all sorts of spooky things to them it's actually got a pretty cool spell in here as well. Uh, it's called, I think it's, the name's changed on it a few times. I think it's called Host Shadow Beast. 
the last last version that I saw. But basically what it does is you roll a number of dice equal to the end value of the spell, and it targets a friendly hero that's not a monster or a titan. And for each hit scored, the target unit gains two extra attacks. So, you know, imagine you've got your uh, your hero there. He's building his sword. He's riding into battle. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, grows some shadowy tentacles, which help to maim a few um, a few enemies as well. So that's that's a pretty cool little spell, which I think um, might be might be quite useful. The the terrain here is very much based around the concept of darkness and death. So there's a hill, there's a magical hill, um, which is actually called a, a butcher's mound. Uh, and that one, I took some of the uh, took the idea of that from one of the concept art pieces. That's, or sorry, one of the artwork uh, pieces that's in the main rule book, which is of a butcher stood on top of a pile of dead bodies. And I thought that would be a cool piece of terrain. So whilst you're on that hill, um, you get a certain effect. And there's definitely a, a focus towards kind of doing shadowy things, messing with your enemy. It sounds really fun, but I think, you know, for, for me, I know we're talking about the rules now the principle that the uh, etheric plane is suddenly open to people accessing it it's got kind of quite a lot of kind of story and fluff impact to it i really i'm really excited to kind of find out how that's dealt with because the principle of the night stalkers is that they're locked away and they're only accessing our plane or you know the material plane through kind of small portals the fact that the planes are now busted open and they're potentially you know, rank upon rank of night stalkers, these kind of long dead nightmarish elving, elven kind of ancestors mm. are now pouring into different planes. And it's kind of really cool. And I can't, I, I can't kind of wait to, to get involved in some of that fluff and that storytelling. That sounds really cool. So, yeah, I think you can kind of make of it what, what you will. I'm not sure whether the planes have been um, busted open for anyone to access or whether the planes in the background, at least are, kind of bleeding into the world of Panathor. I'm not quite sure which way round it works, but sure, you know, it's uh, e- even if it is the other way around where kind of this shadowy realm kind of envelops uh, certain sections of Panathor, you know, you've still got something there that you can kind of set the scene for your battle, make it different and, you know, immerse yourself in that side of it. And so obviously it sounds like, you know, whether it affects people's list design is really going to depend on probably whether you know what plane you're playing in or or whatever first do you think or do you think we'll see some other generic shift in list design like more more spellcasters uh how do you think it's going to change things up matt so personally when i'm writing lists for because i've obviously had a few playtest games of this yeah I, i definitely think it does change how you approach the game you know you're not necessarily playing at the same points level that you're playing at you know, if, you, if you're doing a tournament game or tournament practice game, and also you're going into it with um, a different mindset. So you might think, well, you know, we'll do this for for fun. And we'll include this stupid unit with this stupid magic artifact, which makes no sense in a competitive setting, but let's do it for fun. So there's definitely a, a, a mindset um, switch that happens when you play these games, if you, if you fully embrace it. In terms of how you go about building your army, it, you know, it might be that you and your opponent, you want to you wanna play this, you want to have fun, but you also want to be competitive with it. So, for example, if I was playing Steve or, or yourself in a campaign and we decided, right, let's really go for each other in this. 
we might look at, okay, so this is these are the options which are on the channeling table for this this plane. We're playing, say, the Empyrean plane. I noticed that there's a lot of healings are, are taking place on this list or, or on this channeling table. So how do I make the most of that? How do I take a list which makes the most of that? Do I do I want to take the most of that? Or do I just take something else which, you know, so, someone's not going to see coming? Maybe I want to make the most of the scenario rule or I want to make the most of the terrain that's, that's, uh, that's you know, in, in that plane. So, and of course, you, I'm not suggesting anyone do, does this, but you could always tailor for your opponent. So, yeah, it, it definitely has an effect on things. How it affects things is... Um, really down to the individual players and how much they want to embrace it and what they want to gain from from the experience, really. Yeah, no, well, I, certainly I've only written one list to, to play against this, but the first thing I did was to bang as many casters into it as possible. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted a maximum number of uh, of warlocks and, and to try get, you know, to try out some of the, the new spells just because it's, it's, it's a bit of a laugh, isn't it, really? You could just uh, get as many rolls on the on the precisely yeah as many many roles as you can on the channeling table so that the chance of getting the thing that you need at that particular time you you get that or or you've got a better chance of getting it one of the things that kind of noticeable in our game steve was that although a lot of these things are subtle little things the accumulation of all these subtle little things really kind of adds up and makes the game feel a little bit more magical makes it feel like some extra stuff going on so yeah like like you said you know you you take the extra spell casters but then you know that that's obviously for the channeling table and to get the, the results you want but then by definition you've got more spell casters on the table which means that you've got more spells that can be cast each turn um, maybe you take some of the artifacts which on those spell casters which then um which then buff their spell casting or change how they cast spells a little bit uh, and you've also got the option to take some of the the spells from each of these planes so yeah it, it definitely all kind of adds up quite quickly and then all of a sudden you realize that actually there's quite a lot of magic going on on this table yeah it was definitely it felt more magical rather than just you know lightning bolt it definitely although i did take <laughs> lightning i did take lightning bolt <laughs> uh, so what, one of the things that we, we've kind of skipped we've skipped the fifth plane so we've not talked about it a lot but there is a fifth plane i think this is the one that's really intended to create kind of the most epic kind of encounters so the astral plane so am i right in saying that this is built with the concept around larger battles i suppose tell us about the astral plane yes so the astral plane as you might remember um at the start of this we talked about a request from from mantic for some rules for bigger games and so i'm looking at the uh, the, the diagram in the top right hand corner of page 99 of the king's war rulebook and you can see that the astral plane is the kind of all-encompassing plane that all of the other planes sit inside of. So it makes sense that that would be kind of like the big finale, right? So you start off in the material plane, which is at the centre, you work your way outwards, and you end up in the the, the the grand astral plane. And so the rules for this, very much um, designed for bigger games, and a lot of the stuff in here applies to games which are 3,000 points and up. Again, something else which I did because this is where it gets really crazy and I wanted to kind of avoid the really crazy stuff getting seeping into tournament play somehow. So by saying that this is for big games, you know, and it's only legal in big games, then we can provide that platform for interesting games to take place with more crazy things happening. 
at, at, at a larger scale, um, where it's not going to have uh, an effect on the tournament scene. And also, if something really crazy happens in a big 3,000-point game, or maybe you're even playing like 5,000, 6,000 points, you've got two tables next to each other or something, you know, it, it doesn't really matter too much if uh, if a unit that's worth 200 points dies uh, dies a death to something random happening. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, nothing's really going to wipe out a unit in one go anyway. But, yeah, there could be an accumulation of things that happen that take out a unit. And at that point, it's like 2% of the army's gone rather than 10% of the army's gone. And so it gives us the platform to do that. So there is no specific channeling table for the astral plane. There are no specific spells for the astral plane. There is nothing specific about the astral plane. What there is, however, is the freedom to do whatever the hell you want. So our game, Steve, we played in the astral plane when we when we filmed our battle report. And so we could take any of the spells from this book. We could choose one of the channeling tables to play the game with. So I've chosen the Empyrean plane with my dwarfs, and Steve, you've chosen the Abyssal plane with your rats. So one of us was dealing damage, the other one was was healing. I'm flying Stone Priest's plane. But uh, yeah, we you could basically choose any of the components from this book. And kind of one of my inspirations for that is actually the old 16-bit era of video games where you'd play i don't know something like like a mario or a sonic or streets of rage or, or something along those lines and you'd kind of find that the first few levels would have the same sort of bad guy the middle sort of few sections you'd be dealing with something else and it'd all be quite similar the, the end section of the game perhaps introduces something else but the final level would be all of those things all of those things that you'd learned in the previous uh, stages and it all comes together and it's all of these things and it all kind of culminates in sort of putting what you've learned to the test, if you like. Uh, so, yeah, if you play through each of these um, each of these planes and then arrive at the, uh, the astral plane, then you will have experienced all of the things that build up to that and you'll have a good idea when you go into the astral plane. Okay, so I liked that channeling table. I didn't like that one so much, but I liked that spell. And you can mix and match and play pick and mix and, and kind of do what you really want to do with it. So, yeah, you've got um, potential for, for some quite hilarious things to take place when you're playing in the astral plane. And it is a, is a lot of fun to play these bigger games and uh, uh, have some, some extra crazy things going on. Yeah, one of the things I would say to people is, you know, one of the things I would say to people is is start, probably start with, with an individual plane rather than start with the whole kit and caboodle. If you're worried about the game getting more complex, start with the smaller, you know, with the individual planes. Play through each of them, like you say, and actually, you know, have, as we talk through it now, I think playing through it as a progressive campaign would be super, super fun because it, it allows you to get to grips with things on a kind of gradual basis. You can kind of try out different list archetypes. So that by the time you get to the astral plane for your big finale game, you've got a handle on everything. You yeah. know what you want to take. You can bring every mini you've got, because that's one of the other things we haven't talked about, isn't it? Is that some of the tried and tested rules that we're all familiar with, the Kings of War, go out the window a little bit. Um, things like the allies' limits. Mm. Um, so, you know, because it's large games, I, you might not have like 4,000 points of one particular army, but you might have two 2,000 points armies, no problem, because you're allowed 50% allies in the astral plane, right? That's right, yeah. So, again, um, that was done specifically with that in mind, Steve. You know, didn't want to kind of restrict anyone from being able to take part in this. So, yeah, you can you can totally do the, um, the setup you've just described. You know, you might have 
1,500 points of something and 2,000 points of the other and put those things together for a 3,500-point army. Or you might have two really big armies and you want to go nuts and spend the whole weekend playing with this. So, yeah, it, it just kind of opens up that possibility and makes it a bit more accessible to have those bigger games when you can do some some interesting stuff with allies. Uh, another thing worth um, worth mentioning about the Astral Plane is that heroes in the Astral Plane can actually take two magical artifacts. So uh, essentially, this is it, 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 this is the heroes of of Panathor uh, raiding raiding the cupboard for any anything they can find ahead of this big last battle and, and going to going to war with with potentially you know two magical artifacts. When you're playing at such a big points level, a hero having an extra 25 points of a magic item, sure you might be able to break break it and build some some filthy builds and, and whatnot. But in a game of that size, it, it's really a it's a drop in the ocean, isn't it? So it doesn't um, matter, yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's it's really good towards having fun at, at these in these bigger games. Um, and like you say, you know, once you've played through. All of the um, all of the planes, you'll have a handle on it, and then you go into this big final battle, and uh, you know you kind of test everything you've learned and, and have have a lot of fun in one big grand finale. Okay, and you've uh, mentioned that there's many people that are interested in what's happening at Helpy's Rift, uh, and you uh, hinted at some new heroes in the supplement. Uh, are there also some new units, Matt, or and can you? Give us any hints about what what might be available. Um, at the moment, it's uh, it's just the new heroes. So there are um, there are I want to say thirteen or fourteen new heroes available. Um, so so unfortunately, not every army gets one, but um, most of the armies do. And there's some pretty cool ones there, uh, and they'll be um, they'll be legal for for tournament play as well. They've been um, been been looked at. The rules. They're properly balanced. They're um, close to the properly balanced, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Go on, give us an example. Give us an, give us an exclusive example for the lovely listeners of Countercharge. Um, one of them's an elf. How about that? That that's not an example. That's just a that's just oh. a race. Well, Good be God. still be still my heart. What an insight. <laughs> so bloody bloody rules committee people. Um, right, well we have to buy the book then, aren't we? So um, we've said that you know it's not intended for tournament play. There's not intended, but I, to be honest, I could see a tournament which you know, let's say a two-day tournament that plays through the planes. You know, that, do you think that's feasible? Do you think that's something that could be done? So as I say, I, I tried to put up some barriers to prevent that kind of thing. Just you know, certainly not out of the book. In the book, it specifically says these are the spells you can take in the material plane. These are the spells you can take in the Imperium plane and so on. So if a tournament organiser wants to use this, they'll need to use a bit of their own imagination and kind of go against what we've said is is legal. So it would require a little bit of work from them to, to kind of figure something out. Uh, of course, if you were just to play through each of the um, planes at a tournament, and you're going to do a two-dayer, then each player would need to bring a list for each of the planes, which fine if you want to do it, but I can see it being a bit of a logistical headache. So yeah, it probably would be 
would be something that is better suited to remaining a basement garage backroom casual thing rather than uh, rather than a tournament thing um and of course you know if certain things like this are really popular and people that you know sort of clamor for it to be included then we can look at perhaps ways of tweaking it so that it is uh, an option for competitive play whenever the next supplement comes out uh, the next next balance supplement comes out so uh, we'll monitor it we'll keep an eye on it and you know the, the thing is at the moment obviously with the, the current situation going on whilst i have managed to get some play test games in it's not been as thoroughly play tested as the balance tweaks um, might have been in another year so it's 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 a big old expansion this so it's it's not had the, the same sort of rigorous level of, of play testing and and uh, analysis if you like that we would normally apply to something like this so yeah so so whilst i think the point values for the spells and the artifacts and stuff aren't a million miles off there might be a couple of couple of things where perhaps someone comes up with a certain build that just wrecks everything wrecks everything in its path uh, if if it's allowed to kind of do um, everything that's allowed in the campaign book, which you know, fine if you're doing it once in a in a, in a beer and pretzels game, but you know if it comes uh, an issue on the tournament scene, then um, ultimately that will be down to the the tournament organizer that has allowed those sorts of things rather than being something that we've allowed. And so yeah, the, the, the definite um, answer to that is just keep keep it in the uh, keep it in the garage and. Or your local club, right? You could play. You could very easily play through a campaign with your local club. Oh, or exactly. Like that, right? Yeah. So there might be a bunch of you. I don't know. There might be eight of you uh, at your local club, and you can say, right, week one, Steve, you're playing Mike, and Matt, you're playing Dave, or uh, whatever. Come up with some fixtures. So right, week one, material plane, and and do it that way. Or, or and then week two, abyssal plane, and you work through the planes that way. And maybe you all get together for a four-side game on a on a giant table at the end of it for the astral plane. You know, I could see something like that working uh, and working really well and being a, quite a lot of fun. Maybe you want to split the club into factions and have a, a good and an evil or, you know, something along those lines. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of things you can do with this. And I think particularly with the, with the current situation and uh, the fact that a lot of tournaments won't be taking place um, in many areas of the world for quite a while. It's probably going to be things like games at your friends, a casual game at your local gaming club or, or whatever. So that you're going to be doing certainly for the next, next few months more than, uh, more than say practicing for tournaments that aren't taking place. So now is really a great time for this campaign supplement. It's a great time to, uh, take off your your competitive hat and have some fun with um, with some casual games and just really kind of immerse yourself in the background of it and play for fun. And tell me, Matt, uh, there were some images. Looks like a distributor accidentally put it up for pre-order a little bit early today. So we're looking at a late autumn release, are we? Or and late spring in the better parts of the world down in the southern hemisphere. Uh, I can't comment on anything too. Uh, too I can't comment on anything concrete there. I don't actually know when the specific specific dates are. Uh, obviously, yes, uh, I believe I, I've seen today a, a retailer leaking the availability of it or the uh, option to pre-order it. 
So all I would say is keep looking at the Mantic website, sign up to the Mantic newsletter uh, and various other Mantic-related correspondence. And uh, I'm sure an announcement will be made once something is, uh, is set in stone. Gee, I think, I think Matt's angling for a job as a diplomat after this, Steve. I tell you what, he's he's definitely mm. deflect. I'm, I'm I'm scrolling frantically through Kings of War fanatics as he's saying that because I'm sure Carl Pretzel Twinkie posted something about the day. Here we are. Oh, it's just the price. That was really funny. For those who haven't seen it, somebody posted up a, sc- a screenshot yeah. from a New Zealand website, yeah. and it was like $40. And everyone in America is like, $40 for a book? This is outrageous. No, guys, it's New Zealand dollars. And he was like, this. no, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's a reasonable price. But the funny thing was the people going, $40 for a book? That's amazing by GW standards. So actually, you know, <laughs> swings and roundabouts, guys. Yeah, that'd buy you a page at other companies. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, Matt, what's your hope for this supplement? How do you think it'll be received? What what do you want to see from it? So I guess really I just want people to have fun with it. I want people to enjoy it. I want people to do things that they haven't done with Wargaming for a while. You know, if they've just been, you know, solely, you know, solely focused on uh, on tournament play and, uh, and that competitive side of things, then, you know, do this. Have fun with it. Don't, don't be afraid to kind of branch out a little bit enjoy it and uh yeah just just kind of let your hair down and enjoy being back out playing war games after the year that we've had really it's been a it's been a, a terrible year and we've all kind of missed meeting up and playing in games thankfully i've been able to do it a little bit but not anywhere near as much as i would have liked so when i get back out there i don't want to be you know immediately worrying about oh well if i take this unit and this unit What's what's my list going to be like for the tournament? What if I come up against this guy? Because I know he's going to be taking elves and he's going to have this particular build and I'm going to be really worried. No, I'm not going to. I'm just going to be happy to be putting toys on the table and rolling dice again. And yeah. if yeah. something like this can add to that enjoyment and just let people do something a little bit out of the ordinary and, you know, you can enjoy that with friends, then I'll take a great deal of satisfaction in, in being... Uh, someone who's played a role in giving people that ability. I was gonna say, actually, what I really hope is that people give it the time of day because when books like this come out, people tend to focus more on the balance changes because that's just kind of the community. And I think that's kind of where the siege rules fell a little bit as well, is that people tend to, you know, we're really at that point focused on the balance changes. And we've had a really intensive period of kind of online play for a lot of people. I feel with with uh, the current edition of Kings of War to the point where people have rinsed, you know, really extreme builds that nobody would consider. And and that means that there's a kind of a feel whereby, oh, balance is needed for this, that and the other, which means that the balance changes are going to be kind of heightened. And actually, to my mind, we, we haven't really had a proper tournament season. We haven't really had a proper set of games. So the balance changes are almost a minor, they're a minor attraction to me to what is, you know, quite an expansive, different way to play Kings of War. And I really hope people do give it the time of day. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, there is definitely a, a large focus on, on the competitive scene. And that, that's fair enough. It, 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 drives the, it drives the scene. It helps the game to grow in some respects. But it was like I was saying on the, the previous podcast we did, if you look at Kings of War Fanatics, there are 12,000 people in there that, you know, the, the vast majority of those are not tournament players. They might be people who play casually or people who just have a passing interest in Kings of War. So actually having something like this come out um, 
might encourage a few people to to, to do something different um, and to have, have those games with, with fun in mind. And it might even encourage a few of the, the tournament players to, uh, as I say, let their hair down a little bit, but those that have still got hair. Um, and, uh, and and just enjoy enjoy a few casual games and not take things too seriously and just in, in, enjoy being back with friends when um, when when they're allowed to do so and, and do so safely. So yeah, I definitely think it's uh, it's it's the right time for something like this. Awesome, cool. Well, I think um, having said that, we are going to do another episode where we are going to focus precisely on those balance changes. We're going to have a little talk around what the changes are, what we can expect and where we're going with that. So uh, keep your eyes out. Is there anything you want to sum up, Matt? Anything you want to finish up and wrap up? Um, no, just uh, hope everyone's enjoyed the episode. And uh, this is getting a bit regular in the on-counter charge, isn't it? But yes, we've got one more one more to get through. So I've only got to endure uh, Steve's uh, presence or Steve's company for another hour or so. And then we'll be done for probably... Uh, another year until the next supplement needs to be discussed. You know, um, I, I'm looking forward to the, uh, the third Counter Charge podcast that I've done in probably as many weeks for, for many reasons, but that being the main one. Thank you. And uh, Croja? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I just want to say thanks again, Matt, for giving us your time. Um, I enjoyed the first episode. I'm, I hope people enjoy the second episode. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to number three. And as I clip the 40th base off my salamanders, we'll just say, don't forget to keep countercharging. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons. I've got contrast paint all over my hands. Literally, I'm covered in contrast paint.